Welcome to a special programme featuring a 45-minute interview with legendary radical artist Gustav Metzger. Metzger is best known for his conception of auto-destructive art in 1959 and for convening the Destruction in Art Symposium in 1966. On Saturday the 7th and Sunday the 8th, UCA Farnham will host a two-day conference initiated by Metzger entitled Facing Extinction, which asks the profound question, what role can artists play in radically limiting the ongoing decimation of nature? The conference features speakers and activists from the fields of science and art, including contributions from Yoko Ono, Polly Higgins, Aykroyd and Harvey, Cape Farewell, and London Fieldworks, amongst many others, as well as an evening of performances by artists such as Kennard Phillips, Simon Watt and Ellie Harrison. Residents will be recording the conference for future broadcast. As a taster, here is Gustav Metzger, now 88 years old, talking just a few days ago in his studio in London Fields about his child experience of Nazi Germany, his unrealised projects, his opposition to the art gallery system, his imprisonment for helping organise thousands of people to take part in non-violent civil disobedience against nuclear weapons, and his current exhibition of kinetic art at the Kettles Yard Gallery in Cambridge. The first question I asked Gustav was about his aims for the upcoming Facing Extinction Conference. Oh, there are enormous aims. I feel that unless we deal with maximising ideas and events and activities, we won't get there. We will collapse inwardly. And and so the the aims are world-shaking. I don't mind saying that. And in particular, it's obviously focusing on extinction and it's about the role the artists can play in halting that. Yes, concentrating on our artists. And I've been saying that artists are especially vulnerable to the collapse of nature. Uh, Artists are totally dependent on nature, including, of course, human nature, i.e. humans posing for artists as models and other in, in other capacities. The material of art is totally dependent on nature. If we lose certain lines of, of material, the, the depletion will severely damage artistic activity. In terms of uh, your life history and the things you've been concerned about as an artist, you're most famous for having an interest in destruction in art. Do you see a a logical connection between the destruction of nature that we're seeing now and the destruction that you are reacting against? Yes, very very much so. Destruction in Art Symposium was very much concerned not just with recording the activity activities that artists were taking part in, but it was also a, a warning signal to society. 
and unfortunately that warning signal didn't go very far because we are still destroying at an incredible fast rate. So destruction art was an attempt to itemize what was going on in one part of the world, in one segment of, of society. And this was done for a great variety of purposes and it included this warning element that I've just referred to. And uh, we are polluting more than ever. We are using electricity more than ever. We are wasting more of everything than ever. And so when I look back on Dyer's uh, 1966 and, and expect to get uh, cheered by any part of this looking back in anger, uh, I, 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 I don't see anything except more misery, uh, a greater misuse of all the essentials in life, including the human issues of human capacities. And here I'm, I'm thinking of, I've just spent a day and a half or a day in, in a London hospital and I observed how people, and they are usually men and they're usually rather strong men, going in and out of doors carrying waste material and this waste material includes uneaten sandwiches and God knows what else that could actually and should have been used but is misused, thrown away to fill in landslides which in turn will create God knows how many problems for future people and animals. To, to what extent did your um, interest in uh, the theme of destruction in art come from your own personal experience as a, as a child that escaped uh, Nazi Germany? I think it's totally, totally connected. My childhood had several focal points and the first would have been the Jewish religion which since I was born into a fervently, fervently religious Polish, religious Polish Orthodox family would then dominate the whole of my childhood. And so the Jewish religion, the practice of Judaism, is at the centre of my childhood. When I came to England with my late brother, who at the time, who was in fact a year older, more than a year older than me. Within six months and a year, we both were beginning to adopt the non-Christian ways of life, i.e. we no longer had the specialised meat and the division of meat and dairy products that we, we enjoyed as children. Everything changed due to the war. 
but you actually um, grew up in Nuremberg and, um, and had a kind of direct experience of um, of the Nazi rallies, and and uh, that that must have left a strong impression. That, that's right. So the first big impact was Judaism. The second big impact was the rebellion against Judaism, if you like, the the determination by the National Socialists regime once they got to power to uh, eliminate, actually physically and totally eliminate Jews from within the borders of the so-called Reich. And as a child, uh, one of the most interesting and important experiences for me was to observe, to observe and, and at times physically uh, get involved in this transformation of German society in, in the image of uh, Nazism. And it, it made a, a tremendous impact on me, especially when in the summertime at regular yearly intervals the Nazi party would parade through Nuremberg and it so happens that the apartment in which my parents were living uh, was directly on in, on the route from a relatively small town called Fürth and the very centre of town and and so year by year, at regular intervals, I was uh, invited, if you like, to to observe, not to participate. Jews were not allowed to be members of the Nazi party. And, and so I, I witnessed the transformation of Germany from our apartment window or standing on the side of the street, which I might at times have done. And, and all for one goal, to maximize uh, power, maximize the power of the state, of the government, and of the, the regime. And looking back on that, I can say that I, w- I observed by the change of uniform, which was, I would think, an annual event, the change of uniform of the Nazi party, and the introduction of special uniforms for the SS, the Staatssicherheit, the state security organizations. I, I, I could witness in my childhood the transformation of society through design. And design has been a key fascination of my life. And design and art, art and design, and as a child, I had the opportunity to go into the town centre of Nuremberg, which was a medieval Renaissance town centre, meticulously kept up over the years, in, in pristine condition for me to go as a child and observe and admire and be inspired by what I saw. No, no doubt my childhood in, in Nuremberg good and bad, dangerous and benign, uh, essential to whatever I've done since. And um, I understand your parents didn't survive. No, indeed. 
I saw my father marched off in front of my eyes and obviously to the station of the town, the large station in Nuremberg, and I knew that in that crowd of Polish people, mostly men, were my two sisters also being marched off. I, I saw my father in that column and I didn't see my sisters but I'm sure they were in that column as well. And my relatives, these two people, were then shipped over to the Polish-German border and uh, uh, waiting for something that never happened and whisked off. And my parents disappeared in 1943 and my two sisters at the beginning of the war managed to escape to Sweden on a land route and from Sweden by boat to, to England where they lived on a uh, kibbutz, on a Jewish Zionist commune till the end of the war when they emigrated to Israel. The, my sisters were confirmed Zionists and they trained while they, during the war period, they trained to become active on a communal, in a communal form of life. And they then lived a normal life to the end of their life in Israel, raising new families. So you made a new life for yourself um, in England initially um, and did a, f a number of different jobs before deciding to become a sculptor um, but at some point you decided that destruction in art would be an important focus of your work how, how did that come about? Actually I wouldn't put it like that I think the destruction in art element of what I have done came about through a, a great variety of uh, drives and exploration of possibilities and, if you like, experimentation with material too, which would include burning or dropping, shattering. Uh, that makes me think of the Chinese, the current Chinese artist dropping uh, valuable vases, Chinese vases, and causing a furor in the art world as well as general society. Now that is very fascinating, that of course is destruction in art. It is both destruction of art and destruction in art. And the central point of my work is in fact in the centre of the words I've just put to you. Destruction of art and destruction in art. And these two are poles apart. These two elements which appear to be common place and common to each of them is not, are not common to each of them. They are totally, totally different. And when we organized some of us the destruction in art symposium in the, the spring of '66. The endless, most endless question area was destruction 
what what kind of destruction and we had to explain that destruction of art is is not the same as destruction in art and for example the nazis were experts in destruction of art as you know they they arranged a major exhibition in munich of degenerate art art to be destroyed to be chopped up and Fortunately, they didn't succeed in chopping everything up because quite a lot was hidden away in, in during the German regime or after the collapse of the Hitler and the Nazis. And so not all art was destroyed, not even by this group of people. Um, I mean, you produced three manifestos, one in 1959, one in 1960, one in 1961. Were there any others? Yes, uh, there, there were two more to come. There were five manifestos were produced, or quite short ones, unlike that. Um, more of, of a statement about your own practice rather than trying to develop a movement behind auto-destructive art? That's right. I, I never really wanted to be a leader. I think I had enough of leadership in, as a child. It put me off for life watching the, the Nazi parades and re- reading their papers and listening to their music. There are variations and reiterations of the themes throughout the first three manifestos, and um, but it's a very much a, I read it as a kind of um, a reaction to the, the kind of I mean you talk about the chaos of capitalism and of Soviet communism, and you also talk about um, in the third one auto destructive art as an attack on capitalist values and the, the drive to nuclear annihilation. It's about the violence in society that's inherent in society. Is it very broadly? Perhaps? Yes, very broadly. It's, it, I have, I've been reacting against vast ranges of human activity which so evidently were going the wrong way and clearly are still going the wrong way. And now what is very fascinating as a side element in what we are talking about is the statement, I think it was in yesterday's, printed in yesterday's uh, Guardian, that the governor of the Bank of England is warning against the dangers of capitalism entering the society of the, the, now, ten years ago, you wouldn't have had a bank of England governor saying this. So, uh, it is of extremely, extreme importance that this statement has been made. And, and this has been my position all along, starting from my reaction, from the reaction to, in, to World War Two when it seemed unbelievable that night after night bombers taking off from our country, dropping things on the other side and then bombers on their side doing the same. Coventry is an example. And if I may talk about my own work, Coventry, and that the bombing of Coventry has been central to the development of a work 
which was shown at the last Münster sculpture exhibition, which dealt with this bombing on each side. Now, all my life I faced this kind of issue, the, the unimaginable violence, cruelty and stupidity above all of human action. It's this preoccupation with the reality, the actuality of destruction which runs through my life and which, if I may switch or introduce the subject of that we are really here to talk about, i.e. the current con conference, on the, the totality behind the destruction of nature. At the center of my concern is, is the need to radically change the way we look at animals, the way we I interact with animals, the way we treat and mistreat animals. And by animals I'm inclusive, I include the insects. Uh, and it's this totality of the animals which is really uh, at stake and which is at the center of both the danger and the damage that is happening and which is at the center of the liberation and the freedom, if you like, that we could impose, I use words quite carefully, that impose always in, in exclamation marks the freedom we could impose on animals. In other words, we have the chance to to liberate vast ranges of of existence. We have the power, if we use it, if we don't mis misuse it. And, th and I see the necessity of doing that. I see the necessity of looking at the world in such a way that we will peel off the, the danger, the misuse, the destructivity which is both in us which, and which we then push, push out, out to others, including nature. If we do not undertake the, the most radical perhaps the most radical steps in human history and, and do it within the next 50 or 80 or 100 years, nature may collapse on us. This is an estimation not by me but by uh, a large number of people, so-called scientists, who have looked at it as uh, objective as they can. And, and so a conference like ours, which is a pinprick in nature and in human history, uh, if it works, if it does enough to alert people to make such fundamental changes as are required, uh, if not, if it does not materialize, then I'm say I'm saying to friends and anyone wanting to listen, is that we still have the duty to try to go along this difficult, painful and even dangerous path into the future. That for me 
is, is a central aspect of the conference. But whatever happens, the conference is a step, a valuable, a necessary step, but only a step. The rest is up to the listener. I mean, you said that you think it's really important for artists to be engaged in these issues. So what what kind of artistic responses have you, have you seen? What Do you see some good examples of, of ways in which artists have been engaging with this issue? I, I, I would think there is an increasing... There is an increasing interest among artists in nature. I believe it's fair to say that. And it's something that, of course, I very much encourage. And and it is one of the objectives of this conference to bring artists together, face up to the, the endangered nature in which we live, and to which we contribute, this is very important. I think responsibility is, is the centre of what can be and should be done dealing with nature and the misuse of nature. I've changed my aims and practice in as far as I have taken more note of damaged nature, of damaging nature. Now, as regards wider action, I, I do believe that there is a challenge to art and artists and to all living human beings to focus on the damage to nature that we are, uh, we are practicing through waste, through unnecessary unnecessary activities of all kinds through misuse of animals through damaging and hurting animals or insects for the matter I believe one of the most profound images that have been produced over the past decades is the photo or film of Buddhist monks sweeping the ground as their elder Buddhist uh, priests walk along and they, they are sweeping, the young Buddhists are sweeping the ground to make sure that no insect is hurt by the march to the temple. Now, that is, I believe, the way we should be going. We should be so concerned to save every bit of food that can be used by somebody, including by animals, for that matter. And it is in contrast, in the deepest contrast, to to, to what this Buddhist image does. And I believe this, the center of the conference is in, is in this area, the, the saving of nature, the preservation of nature, the admission that we are only, and in the limited, in the most limited sense, parts of nature. These are some of the ideals, but I could go on at length about the ideals that this conference has and that this conference may spawn 
and this, this Congress must develop in order to save NATO, in order to try and save NATO. And at the center of my position is the view that if we do not succeed, the mere trying to succeed to save NATO is a possibility and a necessity. We may fail with this conference and with any amount of conference after, but the necessity to try and stem the flood of destruction, to open up possibilities of thinking and feeling and loving is crucial, is at the center of, of what I hope this conference will, will achieve. Are you aware of um, some of the groups that are campaigning against the sponsorship of arts institutions by fossil fuel corporations? Yes, I am indeed conscious of campaigns uh, against companies that, that are engaged in major exploration uh, and so on. Is it a campaign that you sympathise with um, and uh, think the tactics they are using of creative interventions inside galleries is a, is a good one? I, I think any uh, objection to major companies risking nature, damaging nature, is, 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 is to be supported. Perhaps we can talk about some of your artwork that you've produced that comments specifically on ecological issues, the, the most famous one being flailing trees. Um, can you say what you... I mean, in a way, it spe- it's an artwork that speaks for itself. Um, but can you describe it and say anything you, you'd like to say about that for people that don't know that work? Oh, yes, I'd love to describe it. It's, 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 I was invited to uh, produce some artwork, some work for a Manchester International Art Festival and after a prolonged search, after enormous activity by myself and my assistants, I came up with a thought of simply taking a tree and turning it upside down. And we did that, and it was after six months searching and hunting to find a solution which was acceptable and uh, perhaps even inspiring to some members of our team. We had uh, 21 trees, and the trees were always the same, uh, below trees. We had 30, 21 below trees in the centre of Manchester. We had 31 below trees in the outside of the Haus der Kunst in Munich and on and on, France, Italy had upside-down trees and willow is associated with sadness if only through Shakespeare's song. And so we all thought it was a very, very successful piece of work. My understanding is is that um, there are a number of works that you planned um, that have you've been un- unable to realise because of, because they've been 
you know, politically unacceptable, I guess, or, or just don't attract funding, perhaps. Um, so, so and, and, and you also produce works that um, you can't sell, um, that, uh, <laughs> that kind of resist commodification, if you like. Um, so um, has, has that made it, made it difficult for you to survive as an artist? Yeah, certainly. Very difficult at times. I, I was living for years and years and years in deep poverty. Could you give us a, some examples of, the, of some of the artworks that r r remain um, unrealised? Yes, well, let me go straight away to the most difficult and the most expensive project, which is called Five Screens with Computer. I don't think I should actually describe this, but essentially it's a, a huge a huge block of steel that you can see, see, imagine it cut up into smaller segments. The segments are placed on top of each other and on the sides of each other and are uh, ejected through mechanical, electric mechanical means from this big block so that after 10 years or so the big block is gone and all you have is a reminder of little blocks lying on the car, little blocks of steel lying on. This is, on the one hand, the simplest of all my big projects, but also the most expensive of, of them. And although this was first proposed uh, in 1963, 65, uh, when computing costs would have been very, very high, even when the computing costs have been reduced, it's still a very expensive uh, object to produce. You may argue and question whether it makes any sense at all, but I certainly think in aesthetic terms, in terms of the history of aesthetics and artists, Project. This is a perfectly logical and valid idea. It just hasn't been produced. Do, 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 you, do you think that didn't particular project didn't get funding because it was so expensive, or, or, or was there a political dimension to it? I would think, first of all, economics. The, the economics would have been so so hard, and it isn't just the manufacture; it's the research costs that would have been needed. It's the finding of a site, so I could well see it was just, just too difficult to produce and too expensive. And and also we may be not quite up to dealing with such dimensions in the art world. It is big, would have been big. And I'm quite reconciled to this as a, a non-event. To give uh, listeners another illustration of, of, of one of your works, um, I read about a, um, a piece called Projects Realised Number One, Monument to Bloody Sunday. Um, could you just say a few, just describe that again for, for, for listeners? Yes, Monument to Bloody Sunday is uh, something which comes straight out of my living of history. I must have witnessed and heard comments on the radio uh, about the events and within a few months 
might come up with this project of uh, not making a monument but designating a particular object in London and saying this is a monument to Bloody Sunday. And of course this is to do with concept art which in, in the 70s when this project was presented was a very common form of art action, artist action. And it simply did turn things on its head. The, the monument I chose was in fact part of the war machinery of the British government at one point or another. And, and so to bring together this uh, then active then active war equipment with another form of war equipment I thought was very interesting and uh, so did the Tate Gallery who actually chose to buy a photograph of this project and put it in the Tate Britain collection. So it was a lot, like a little uh, Duchamp ready-made but um, in this case the, the building was the Ministry of Defence? With a political, obviously a political dimension through through the the name of the uh, of the piece. Yes, it's a form of art which is quite, as I said, quite common and fully acceptable. Is to use words to and sentences to create other forms of art activity. Maybe if we can just talk briefly about the kind of political action that you were involved with as well over the years. Um, you know, some of it has been kind of documented. To the Guardian, in uh, a couple of years ago, you said um, that when you were eighteen, you were confronted with a choice whether to move into art or revolutionary politics, and you took the path of art. Um, so at the same time that you were producing all these uh, manifestos in 1959 to 61, you were also participating in the Aldermaston March against nuclear weapons. And also, am I right in thinking you uh, co-founded the uh, Committee of 100, which was this uh, kind of splinter group from CND, but uh, committed to uh, non-violent direct action? Well, I certainly... I, I lived in Norfolk, I lived at Kings Lynn, in Kings Lynn at the time, fifties, when the, the Direct Action Committee Against Nuclear War, headed by Pat Arrowsmith, was active in, in Norfolk, in, in out of Kings Lynn, where I lived over at that period. And they asked whether I would join them they asked anybody for support and I thought I would help them by speaking on in on markets against nuclear weapons which I then did and uh, coming to, to London uh, I met up with uh, this committee again a man a young American called Ralph Schoenmann who had the idea of mass civil disobedience against nuclear weapons, which I supported with others. And with others we came up with the project of getting 
2,000 people to sign forms saying they would participate in direct action against nuclear war. And this is what happened. Uh, groups were formed, reformed, and the mass civil disobedience took place with thousands of people blocking the entire Trafalgar Square area and 500 people being arrested. So this protest was a great success, we thought. But after a few years, this organization uh, fell apart and this mass civil disobedience didn't actually go, go very far, at least not in this country. Okay, but for a time you managed to mobilise thousands of, of, of people, and I understand you also were arrested as, as, as part of that as well? Yes, I was arrested, and I was imprisoned. 35 members of the com- this committee were imprisoned in one swoop and served mainly on gardens and farms in north of England which was actually quite a nice period for most of us. One month out of the normal wear and tear of London life. So the chance to rub shoulders with men like Bertrand Russell, Herbert Reed, and any amount of British intellectuals was also quite stimulating to many of us. And again, uh, something on the side something unexpected in life is usually a good thing. And um, there's all this kind of dialectic in your work between uh, destruction and creation and you, you've, you've also, one of your third manifesto in, included uh, auto-creation as, as one of its um, subjects and you've just had a, an exhibition open I think earlier this month, which reviewed some of your auto-creation work. Um, Would you like to say a little bit about that? Yes, I'm I'm happy to go along your question line. And that leads me back to my childhood. I was so fortunate in that I could go into town centre on foot after a certain age, of course, and, and live among the artworks, the public artworks, which were filled, literally filled, the, the centre of, of Nuremberg, one of, which was one of the great medieval uh, centres in, in the world, no doubt. All without paying, without queuing, I could freely wander in and out. There's no question that when later on I became involved with art, that this childhood experience would be a dominant one and a very healthy one. And so, speaking of health, I believe kinetic art can be healthy, can be liberating and stimulating, and it can affect the different nerve centers of the human being. And and so, our art is, as I practiced it, is, is a way of life, can inform a, a way of life uh, towards the creative, towards the, the good, towards the, up, uh, the, the, the generating parts of life. 
and so I think that our art should be venerated, should be supported, should be stimulated, because the the, the returns are very very significant, and I I think the show in in that we have in in Cambridge at, at the moment is is all about generation. It's all about going towards freedom. It's all about stimulating human capacities. And I certainly encourage people to to make the trip if they if they don't actually live there and and get involved with something ephemeral. But it's an if the ephemeral is precisely the point. And one of the points, which is not to cling on to things to the extent that we do, to give space for for the, the random, the unpredictable. This is the message of, of this exhibition, uh, and I'd be very happy to go on talking about art as, as a means of liberation. In, in the wider sense of the term and not merely on the physical plane or entirely on the spiritual, emotional plane. Yeah, because um, a lot of your artwork has been um, conceptual, kind of suggestive, um, as, as you say, not not kind of designed for collectors. Um, it, it has a kind of higher, higher purpose, if you like. Yes, a, a lot of the art has been an attack on art an attack on art in as far as it is overexposed, it is overpriced, it is taken in to culture for the wrong reasons, that is to say for personal aggrandizement or for uh, chess, chess playing, uh, for figures, uh, astronomical figures when a work of art as it has done is sold for well let's say a hundred thousand dollars well you know you you uh, scribble on a piece of paper by us by John is priced as that kind of it becomes ridiculous and, and it becomes d damaging and so part of my life has been spent attacking this art world system of just out of the throwing figures out of a hat and, and then establishing values on the basis of these. And so a manifesto, which I won't repeat it now, but which violently attacks the art gallery system is one which was necessary. Somebody had to make it and I made it and I'm not proud of it, but I, I accept there is a necessity for people to act at times against the so-called normality of the world. I've done that again and again, and uh, I think I should get the credit for it at some point, maybe by becoming a sir or something. You never know what uh, we end up with eventually. You've been listening to Gustav Metzger talking about his life and work ahead of his Facing Extinction conference this weekend, 7th and 8th of June at UCA Farnham. Resonance FM will be recording the conference and broadcasting highlights, 
So keep your ears peeled for that. My name is Phil England. Thanks for listening.